This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. And higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? This is Paris. This is Chuck T. This is Flavor Flav, boy. And you're in tune to 91.1 FM, WGDR. Plainfield. Special magic. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I am a traveler. A wanderer. It's always changing and it is always the same. The The world is listening. My guest is Emily L. Quint Freeman, and we'll probably talk about that name at some point, maybe toward the end. 
She graduated from UC Berkeley in 1967, and during that time, she became an activist for peace and social justice. Her family disowned her for her politics and for coming out as a lesbian, and she worked as a draft counselor with the American Friends Service Committee, and in May of 1969, Emily and 17 others broke into a Chicago draft board office and burned about 40,000 draft files as an act of nonviolent civil disobedience against the Vietnam War and racial inequality. And after that, they stayed around and waited for the police to come and arrest them. And what followed was this harrowing and also equally wonderful story of 19 years of living as a fugitive on the run. And this story is detailed so beautifully in this wonderful new book, Failure to Appear, Resistance, Identity, and Loss, a Memoir. First off, I just want to say I really, really loved this book. Well, thank you. It was so deeply moving, and I could relate to a lot of things about it. In my senior year of high school, I studied the uh, Chicago 8 slash 7 trial intensively for about six months and really got enthralled with that and read everything I could get my hands on about it. And there was a movie that I remember that really moved me a lot that came out in the late 80s called Running on Empty, which your story reminded me a lot of that. Yeah, I remember that movie. I'm glad you really uh, connected with the book. What I was thinking is maybe you could start by reading the dedication at the beginning of the book. This book is dedicated to all those who resist, persist, stick out, defy, think for themselves, show compassion to the most vulnerable, safeguard our threatened planet, abhor the forces of bigotry, hate, war, violence, and fear. Remember to speak truth to power and to hope, as hope is the basis of all struggle for change. Finally, let me be perfectly clear my story isn't ancient history. Actually, it's more like the same sh- different day. One thing about that dedication was that last line where you interpose the word queer instead of clear. I would love for you to talk about the added meaning of that in this context and also in terms of the time. Well, I initially meant that as sort of one of these sort of Jewish odd sense of humor things but also to affirm my identity, make my words stand in line with who I am. And that really isn't a dated thing to being truthful as much as you can and steadfast to your identity. I don't think that's something of the past. It's something rather evergreen. And I hope in that dedication to carry that message to whoever picked up the book. I would also love for you to talk about your upbringing and also what it was like being queer or being a lesbian during that time. Well, I was raised in a Jewish household in Los Angeles, not a religious household. Um, Our circumstances fluctuated 
with my father's investments in the stock market, you know, kind of rags to riches, riches to rags sort of inconsistencies. But I think from an early age, I stood out and was different. I really didn't have a relationship until I was in college. But, you know, being different, being gay, was a subterranean existence. And even in the progressive circles around civil rights and, you know, with free love and all that, it didn't mean you could be out as being gay. Matter of fact, people who were very active in the civil rights movement hid who they were. Andrew Ruxton, James Baldwin left the United States and went to France. So it was a time where people had to live two lives, even amongst social activists. And that really didn't change until after Stonewall, until the early 1970s. So it was a very much a secret bar existence, you know, with your code language and your circle of friends and relationships. Thank goodness that's changed. Maybe not everywhere, I would suspect. I think many parts of this country and around the world are still back in those days. But anyway, that was kind of my upbringing. And I excelled in school, so I had an opportunity to attend UC Berkeley, and as soon as I had the opportunity to go away for school, I took that opportunity, and my life obviously changed ever since then. And I had a rather explosive call with my father, which set really the motion of my future life. My first relationship, I wanted to go away with this woman that I had fallen in love with for the summer. And I told my father that. <laughs> and not only he didn't react very well, he decided to employ his tactic of removing all of his financial support for me at college. And he thought I would cave pretty quickly. And I refused to cave. So my family and I broke apart on that one phone call. But I managed to stay in school and graduate, did well. But I did so totally, you know, from a new position of being on my own, having to scrape by, take odd jobs, et cetera, et cetera, from a comfortable middle-class background. But I think it defined a bit of character, the backbone, that prompted then other things that happened in my life. Such as? Such as seeing the truth really, of America, the America around me. You know, again, I came from a very comfortable white neighborhood, and I could see only a slice of life. I didn't understand about segregation. I didn't understand about the war in Vietnam and what that was. But I was ready to open my eyes and not just kind of absorb it all and carry a picket sign, but to personally get engaged in that, which led to after graduating college, is kind of hopping on a van with a bunch of other young activists and heading to Chicago, where I ended up as a draft counselor for the Quakers. So that sort of kick-started that. But I think even before, you know, I, I understood factually about racism and understood about what was going on, there was this child who was, who was different, who could feel empathy. And I remember sitting on the couch in high school and watching television, and it was the night that the Ku Klux Klan 
They have murdered four innocent young girls at a church in Montgomery, Alabama. And my father dismissed this as really being caused by, quote-unquote, the Negroes. But I understood this somewhere deep down. And I think, looking back on it, the basis of what I did, I think, is based on empathy. And that empathy was sort of defined by the fact that I was different from square one myself. And can see things from a different angle and feel things from a different angle. You also lived through the assassinations of JFK, Martin Luther King, and Bobby Kennedy, as well as living through the Vietnam War. Yes, when I arrived at Berkeley that year, that was the year that JFK was murdered. And it was a decade punctuated in an awful way by assassination. I think the most deeply felt for me was the death of Dr. King. As I was in Chicago during the time and working with a Puerto Rican welfare rights organization, you know, I could see and be part of the community which actually exploded after he was murdered. Cities were set on fire. It was a time of unbelievable sadness and disbelief that this could happen. But it was defined by an era of that. And, and the Vietnam War stretched on for such a long time, all in my youth, you know, with no end in sight, you know, with excuses and stories and of what our motives were there. You know, for me, it, it looked like just one bloody event after another, uh, slaughtering of innocent people for no reason at all. But it certainly was a time of you know, living through both war and upheaval at home. It was certainly quite a turbulent time. And I think my generation, at least some of them, responded to that and wanted to transform society. So your life as a fugitive living on the lam for 19 years was the result of that act of burning the 40,000 draft files. How did you get involved in that? I mean, how did you go from UC Berkeley to actually getting involved in this particular action? I was working as a draft counselor at the American Friends Service Committee, which meant that I was counseling young men who wanted to be a conscientious objector or wanted more information about the law. So I had an ongoing relationship on a very personal level with the war in Vietnam. Through the Quakers, through the AFSC, I met someone as a luncheon speaker, and this professor who was speaking was a very well-known peace activist, and he said there was going to be a meeting at his house, and that Father Phil Berrigan would be there, and it would be talking to young activists about what they could do besides picketing and laying in and, you know, marching and leafleting, all that stuff. So I went to this meeting and met Phil Berrigan. And a year prior, he and seven other people went into the office of the draft board in Catonsville, Maryland, and grabbed a couple of hundred files and set them on fire with sort of a homemade napalm. And it was a new kind of protest, this idea of destroying these paper files. So he and his brother Dan were the leaders of that group. 
and I met Phil Berrigan, and it seemed to me at this meeting that this was an act of conscience, nonviolent in nature, that I could understand and relate to. It was actually doing something. And this was before computers. So these were records and files and ledgers and documents. And I felt that by destroying these files, which is what he explained to us, that we would actually save the lives of these men beside be making an act of conscience. So even now, here we are almost 50 years later, you know, I think that there's grandfathers out there, you know, guys who were on the south side of Chicago, mainly in a large, sprawling black community who are alive today because of this. That's why this act appealed to me. And that's how I got connected. So how did you become one of the leaders of this action? I think Father Berrigan kind of singled me out. First, you know, there were only two women. The rest were Catholic clerics and seminarians and activists. So there were, you know, me and one other woman of 18 people. I was the only Jewish kid. He kind of liked me. And he partnered me up with a priest and said, you know, you guys kind of lead this thing. The other thing, as I was local also in Chicago, I was working in Chicago, some of the people who were part of the group were from Milwaukee. One was an Italian priest. So it was male Catholic pacifists and me <laughs> and, and one other woman. So I think that was how I ended up working with this priest and leading this group. Tell us a little bit about this priest that you worked with. He was a Carmelite priest from Milwaukee who was in a parish in, in the inner city of Milwaukee. And prior to that, he was sent to the Philippines to work in rural churches there. He'd become a radicalized worker priest, as I would call it. So he was a very strong person. We had a complex relationship. I never came out to him and told him that I was gay or anything. But he participated in this action, I think, because it was the most radical thing he could do at the time. And he and I, after this, had a very complex relationship, not only through the year later on the trial, but also he became initially my partner in fleeing. He was the one that had contacts in the organization to help us flee Chicago. So I was with him for a period of time. Mm -hmm. And the book outlines really the fact that we fundamentally differed in our views. I remain nonviolent to the core, and he decided he wanted to take a sort of armed revolutionary point of view. So after your arrest, you were locked up in the famous Cook County Jail for 20 days before getting bailed out. What was that like, and how did that experience affect you? Well, that was a horror show, that 20 days in the jail. I was sort of singled out by the guards to do hard duty. I was put with a woman who was a heroin addict. It was a very violent, disturbed place, and I swore to myself I didn't want to go to jail or to prison. I was very traumatized, I would say. It's the best word to describe it by that whole 20 days. And I think that certainly shaped one of the things that shaped, you know, a year later, my agreement to flee with this priest 
with the help of his organization because it was held, basically. And probably to this day, these places are held for people, many of them, who have mental and emotional problems. Yeah. Talk about the trial and also the political environment that it was happening within. Well, by the time we got to 1970, the country had completely changed. It was a polarized, angry society, kind of like today, actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you think about it. Yeah. Very polarized. And we were brought to trial in May of 1970, right after the peaceful protests at Kent State, where four students were killed by the National Guard during a peaceful protest. It was also after the trial of the leaders of the demonstration at the Democratic National Convention. So there was an atmosphere in the courts as well of hysteria, I would say, the best way to describe it, to not allow these people to, quote-unquote, have their day in court, to hear what they have to say, etc., etc. So my trial began with a gag order, where the judge ordered that we couldn't speak to the press or anyone about our motives. Literally, four of us had to plea insanity in order to get a glimmer of our beliefs and motives in front of a jury. In other words, we were insane to hold the beliefs we had in a society that in itself, in my mind, was insane. But the judge was determined that we would not be allowed to speak other than the factual information about the act itself. It became an utter circus and Stalinist type of show trial, and our plea of insanity didn't actually work. But that was the atmosphere, a society sort of tearing itself apart in violent acts breaking out not only in the part of the authorities, but also some young people deciding to bomb government buildings and stuff like that. So it could not be a worse time to go to trial. So you decided you did not want to go to jail after that experience in Cook County Jail. So talk about how you went on the run. Because I I would imagine that most people, and I think that includes the overwhelming majority of people, have never had to do anything like that. So they probably have no idea what that's like. So I would love for you to talk about going you know, on the run. It was, you know, it, it was not only the, the Cook County Jail. You know, my family had really abandoned me. They knew I was on trial but never, never reached out to me. There's one scene in the book with my aunt briefly. You know, I was angry, confused, bitter. This priest had access to an organization who said we could, quote-unquote, continue the struggle They would uh, respect my pacifist beliefs. All of this was extremely naive on my part. Looking back, I certainly understand that. I was very naive about this priest and his organization, but it offered me a way out of what I thought was a terrible situation that had nothing but a desperate and awful outcome in some federal prison for a long period of time. This judge was determined that we would spend many, many years in prison, unlike the Catonsville action where they were sentenced, I think, to two years, three years of probation. 
they were going to throw the book at us, especially to the two leaders, this priest and I. So I was facing many, many years in prison. But as I said, this priest had an organization who would basically snatch me off a street in Chicago, put me in a van, and take me away. I knew nothing about them, who they were, where we were going. But that's how desperate, I think, I was at that very moment in time. So tell us about that journey. And it's a long journey, but uh, take us through it. We'll, we'll go through it kind of step by step and also talk about some of the people you met along the way. But tell us about, um, lead us, take us to where you and Nick broke. Well, we were underground in the South. His organization, some of the leaders, wanted Nick and I to participate in an armed robbery to purchase weapons for the quote-unquote revolution. I absolutely refused to do this. I absolutely refused to be any part of this group. And basically, with a fake ID and a little money, I got on a bus and I went to another city totally on my own, with a fake ID, with a little money in my wallet, and that's it. And I had to go from there, using my wits and getting incredible help from the kindness of strangers. I had strangers who were so helpful to me, a black woman at the YWCA who found me a place to stay, a professor at a university who opened his, uh, gave me an apartment, although I couldn't pay for it. His daughter had been killed in a domestic violence. A Jewish architectural firm who offered me a job as a receptionist, typist. You know, these were amongst the people along the way who knew an alias, but yet opened their hearts and gave me aid at a time I really needed it. So I went from, as I said, with a piece of paper, a fake ID, and a little money, very little money, got myself a job, got myself established, and at least steady. And at that point, I met at the architectural firm a young man who saw right through me and said, you know, you need to come out, woman. <laughs> And I then, with his being my little Dante guide, started my life as who I really am as a gay woman. And then I went clandestinely to see my very closest woman friend that I knew in Chicago. She was then living in San Diego. And we had a pivotal meeting with each other. And where I said, I, even though this is nice, I need to go the next step. I need to maybe return home to the Bay Area where I viewed as home. But by a circuitous route, though, I met some women who were involved in the first part of women's liberation. This is now the early 1970s. Part of the early liberation movements, both gay and women's liberation, who were part of sort of a lesbian separatist organization in Washington, D.C., called the Furies. And I met some people there, and by some strange circumstance, a woman was able to give me 
another ID, another piece of paper, birth certificate. And I decided with that ID to switch my name around a bit to become Emily Freeman and return home to the Bay Area. In other words, sort of hiding in clear sight. Here I was back in the Bay Area. But this was the best possible thing for me to do, was to return to the Bay Area, where I, I lived until 1986. And during that time, that long period of time, I actually established a career, first in computers and then in insurance and risk management. Yeah, I want to get into that, but before we get sure. more into that, I sure. just want to highlight, not only did you get a new birth certificate and new identity, but also a passport, and those are very difficult documents to get. Usually you have to pay a lot of money for them, and this woman that you met just gave them to you. Yeah, but I destroyed the passport. I decided right then and there that I would not flee to Canada or Cuba or somewhere. I felt that would be a bridge too far forever. And I decided to stay in the United States. But that was a tremendous act of kindness and generosity. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I did have, as I said, these unbelievable selfless acts of kindness happened to me during this whole experience. I'm talking with Emily L. Quint Freeman. She's the author of Failure to Appear, Resistance, Identity, and Loss, a memoir. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour. That was such an incredibly moving part of, of your story, was these amazing and wonderful people and the love that, that happened, that despite the fact that you were, you were withholding your identity, your real identity and, and your past from them, these people, to me, it seemed pretty clear that they recognized who you really were, even though you were living a lie in terms of your name and identity. Yeah, I, I think they all recognized deep down that I was in trouble, that I never maybe said it, but they sensed that I had something bad going down. <laughs> and they were there to help. They didn't know maybe who they were helping, but they knew I was in trouble. Mm -hmm. So talk about the dynamic of living a lie in a way, and yet receiving such incredible generosity and kindness from these people. Really, that was a strong impetus for me to do something about all of this. You know, the fact of the matter is people were opening their wallet, their hearts, in so many different ways. People in San Francisco, my neighbor in South San Francisco, my gay male friends, you know, all these people that came along the way. And I was never being honest with them. I was never being truthful. I was always spinning a story. No one could ever get close to me. No relationship can be founded on such a profound lie about who you really are, you know. And, and that in itself, it took me a long, long time to realize that I was actually in prison, that my existence was a sort of prison. And it took me these years to realize no matter how liberated I felt as a gay woman, it was impossible to form any sort of relationship if I was not being truthful about who I really was. 
and the grief and shame and I felt with that was very profound. And it deepened over time as tragic things happened, relationships went in and out. I realized it was impossible in the end to really carry this on the rest of my life. And I finally found, or maybe because I was ready to find, I found a way out of this. Mm -hmm. uh, but I had to be open to it, right. ready to accept that I must put my whole life at risk again. Because I built this wonderful career. I mean, I, despite myself, I'm not bad at capitalism, you know? <laughs> you know? So I had built this whole edifice of stability and some money and a job, a really nice job. I had to put all of that on the table in order to escape this invisible prison. That's what this was all about. And that took quite a few years to get to that place. Yes. So talk about that career in the insurance industry. That just seemed like a very unlikely career for someone like you. Or well, maybe actually, it's more about me than you. <laughs> well, actually, it's kind of freaky. You know, I started in computers, you know, at the dawn of the tech age, and I became a systems analyst. And I got a job at an insurance company doing some programming and uh, specs and stuff. And they recognized right away that I might be material for an insurance company for what's called an underwriter. Oddly enough, and I think this is part of the fact that I think God must be Lenny Bruce, you know, mm -hmm. is that, you know, oddly enough, I'm very suited to being an analyst of risk. <laughs> yes. I'm very good at it. So the core skill set of an insurance underwriter is the ability to analyze risk and make decisions. And this uniquely was a career I was really well suited for. And I rose quickly from a junior underwriter to be the director of an insurance company, all while underground. And I actually continued a career, slightly different basis, after all of this was over. But I was very good at risk management. And so uniquely, I could use those analytical skills in a business career. <laughs> I still laugh today about it, as you can hear me because they recognized, despite who the hell I was, that I could be one of the better ones at this. Yeah, I found that very amusing that I think it was the, the president of the insurance company described what you were doing, and then he said, you know what that is? And you didn't say it out loud, but you said, yeah, you're describing fugitive. a successful fugitive, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he said, a underwriter, you know, which is the core job of any insurance company. So that skill is what allowed you to survive on the run. Otherwise, you would have ended up in jail because most people who go on the run do not make it. They, they, almost everyone gets caught eventually. Yeah, they commit some sort of stupid thing. They hang out with their old friends, you know. No, I ended up in uh, very unusual circumstances in business, but it required an analytical skill that was incredibly well-suited to the industry. 
And instead of, as I said, doing something stupid, I had a long list from my priest friend of what would be stupid. I followed that pretty rigorously. And despite myself, I became incredibly successful. (laughs) Yeah, and also along the way, you broke a number of those rules, although you, you agonized over each of those decisions. Well, yes. I mean, I, I joined uh, Gay Liberation Parade in San Francisco with Harvey Milk. <laughs> you know, I did various things that should have been the end of me, but wasn't. You know, it was me at the end who voluntarily surrendered. Yes. Talk about how you came to that decision to turn yourself in. And also talk about the therapist you met, because I, I remember in the story, you were totally against the idea of seeing a therapist, and how did that unfold? Yeah, she was doing a group session with a bunch of lesbian women, and she recommended that we all reconnect with something. And I ended up going to a Jewish synagogue, a gay Jewish synagogue in L.A., which was an eye-opener for me, first, that there was a gay Jewish synagogue. But I decided that maybe she could answer to, you know, the fact that I was so sad and so lonely in many ways. And I asked her if I could, you know, do some private sessions with her. And she realized pretty quickly that we weren't getting anywhere and said, well, we got to stop this. I'm not learning anything about you. Of course she wasn't because I wasn't telling her the truth. And she was the first, well, actually the second person. Well, let me think about this a minute. I I told my neighbor who was dying, I told him the truth. But I voluntarily told her the truth and began some therapy with her. And she wasn't pushy, and she didn't say you should surrender or anything like that. She said, continue to try to reconnect. And I went back and found, after, what, 25 years, I found my mother and went to see her. And then we went to see my father And they were in completely different positions than they were when I had split with them in college. They were divorced. My father had remarried. But anyway, with my mother and father wanting to help me see if we could get somehow get this right. I would love for you to to talk more about your reconnection with your mother and your father because it was complicated. You know, I, I yeah, I hired a private detective and under a ruse and found where she was. And uh, I, I went to see my mother, and I was told by the detective that they were divorced, and my father had remarried, and my mother was living in an apartment. She was in bad kind of mental shape, in my view. But we reconnected to the point where she could see that I needed some legal help. And she did the thing that she least liked to do, which is call my father and take me out to where he was living. He was now a wealthy man again and see if there was a way we could connect with a lawyer and find out if I could find a way back, at least find out what the state of things were. So through my family's connections in Chicago, which is where my father was from, and my mother lived for a time in Chicago, she found a uh, criminal defense lawyer who had used to be working in the federal prosecutor's office. And through this lawyer, I could find out the true state of affairs. And then the second miracle happened. (laughs) (laughs) And that miracle was 
that the judge in my case had died, so they can no longer bring me before him again, and that my sentence had been thrown out two years after I became a fugitive because it was an illegal sentence. In other words, the guy's fury to sentence the priest and I had given us a sentence which was illegal, thrown out on appeal, and all those years I never knew that. But since I had no sentence and would have to appear before a new judge, there was an opportunity for me to make a decision right then and there to voluntarily surrender or continue this subterranean weird life. And I decided to take the opportunity, to take the lifeline, even if it meant my career, whatever it meant, to take the lifeline and voluntarily surrender and stand before a new judge with no sense and see where that led me. What were you told were the likely consequences of turning yourself in? What were the likely possibilities that you were facing, you know, going before a new judge and having your case reopened? Well, it could be anything from probation to prison. So basically, no one wanted to refight the war in Vietnam. Nobody wanted to go back morally on a completely immoral war and discuss that again. That really wasn't the matter. The matter was I fled. Would I be sentenced to prison for fleeing? Not the war in Vietnam. That was not the main issue. And so it was really the idea that I had an opportunity to explain my life to a new judge and what I had been through over the last 19 years, that I actually had served a prison sentence. My time underground was actually the prison sentence. And would that way towards probation versus prison? Was there any point in punishing me further by sending me to prison? So those were the options. And again, another miracle happened. <laughs> the prosecutor turned out to be from a Quaker background. Although she couldn't recommend that I not be given prison, she certainly did everything in her power she could do, legally and ethically, to give me a fair shake at probation. But I had to stand on my own two feet, explain my life to this new judge, to the probation officer, to the prosecutor, admit my mistakes in fleeing without doing something I refuse to do, which is denying the act of burning those draft files, the act of conscience against the war. And I would not turn anyone in. I would not help them. I would not do any of that. That was not possible. But I certainly was not going to apologize for what I originally did but I must face the consequences for the years as a fugitive. That was the position I took with my lawyer, to fully admit my mistakes about fleeing. So how did this whole process unfold between negotiating the terms of your surrender and then actually surrendering yourself? It was all arranged in advance. You know, once I was on board with doing this, the prosecutor arranged everything. Nobody was going to leap out of the bushes at me. Nobody was going to arrest me at the airport. I was going to get on a plane with my mother, come back to Chicago. I was going to appear at the federal building. I was going to go to her office, and then everything set in motion. They were also willing to let me go back to my life in California 
for the time until the actual resentencing hearing, which was several months, and then reappear back in Chicago. On the stipulation that I had, Bale and my father had to put up his house as security to me reappearing. So my father found this act of kindness again, although he never agreed about me being a lesbian and any of that. He agreed at that moment in time to do that. He put me to a test to make sure I would. Anyway, I won't describe that now. But there was a little test. I passed the test. I did voluntarily surrender. I did go back to California, and I did then reappear for my sentencing hearing several months later. Tell us about your trial, your hearing, and what unfolded from there. Just, uh, you know, it was, it was sort of a procedural thing. It really wasn't a trial. I was already convicted, but uh, uh, the prosecutor threw out one of the charges. That turned out to be unfounded. Anyway, I was already convicted, but uh, essentially it was uh, a speech by the prosecutor and the probation officer. The prosecutor had to recommend prison, but the probation officer recommended probation. I had to speak. My lawyer had to speak. And I basically told the judge, you know, essentially about my invisible prison for a bit. And he went back into his chambers. He actually consulted a couple of other judges and walked back in 20 minutes later and said, you have probation and a fine and credit for time served. Unfortunately, well, unfortunately or unfortunately, there were reporters in the courtroom and what started out was a private affair of resentencing hearing was in the newspapers that night. So by the time I got back to California, my employer knew. It was already in the newspapers. But on the good side, I was a free woman. I was doing some probation and could decide then and there to, I did decide to change where I lived. But there was, again, an opportunity for me to continue on. And I decided that there was no way back to my original birth name, but there was a way to reclaim it, which is the idea of setting the name Emily Freeman and putting in the middle L. Quint, which was my original name, put the two names together and legally changed my name to this so that I reclaimed all of myself. The adult person who had spent 14 some odd years as Emily Freeman building this career and friends and life and my friends particularly decided I certainly couldn't decide to be some other woman, you know, call me something else. <laughs> that was not possible. So the way to do it was to combine all of this together, first name in the middle, Emily Freeman on my bookends, and continue and build a new life in a new city in this similar career to what I had before. So at the end of the book, I did a symbolic act of thanking very, very dear friend. That's how the book ends, going up on a hill in South San Francisco and telling him, hey, I'm not who you thought I was. You told me to tell you my first name when I could, so I told him my name. He had passed away at that point, but he and I made a pact that that was something I should do. What was the so that's how the book ends. Yeah, what was the significance of that pact that you made with him? Um... He knew, I think he guessed, uh, he really was someone who introduced me to 
a whole different way of life, of gardening and, and nature and all that, and that's now an essential part of my life. He was dying of cancer, and he said, I know something's... I was then underground, and that happened, and uh, tell me what's going on with you. And I told him the truth, who I was. He said, when you free yourself, I want you to go up on this hill, and I want you to tell me who you are. So I said, okay. But at the time, I said to myself, when is that going to be? You know, I, I don't see a way out of this. I'll probably never do that. But it was the first thing I did after I landed in San Francisco, got myself a place to stay. I went up on the hill and told him. And he just happened to be the person who lived next door to you yes. at this house that you had bought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think I bought the house because he was my neighbor. He oh. and I just sort of clicked with each other, you know? I just thought, wouldn't it be really cool to live next to him? He was an incredible man, you know? He had survived the death march in Bataan. You know, the Japanese were hauling him off during World War II to a prison camp. He imagined to survive that. Wow. So he and I were just, you know, like brother and sister. You know, he didn't know who his sister was. <laughs> he yeah. found out at the end of the book. <laughs> and you connected with other people like that as well. You lived through the AIDS, you know, the genesis of AIDS, and you had very close friends who, one at least, who died yes. during the story. Yeah. And I think that was one of my biggest regrets, is that my closest gay male friend who died of AIDS, he never knew the truth. I never told him, you know. But so I did my probation. I decided in his honor I would do my probation at an AIDS clinic. So I thought that was a way to say thank you to him. And another thank you to my friend Stan. That's not his real name, but that's the name I use in the book. My neighbor who introduced me to bird watching and watching nature and all that, I said, well, I think I'm going to split my probation between the AIDS clinic and working at the Audubon Society and helping them out at the bookstore. So that's how I did my, how many hours was that? I think it was 10,000 hours of community service. That's a lot of hours. <laughs> yeah, I did. I think they, after about 5,000 hours, they realized I wasn't a desperado and that maybe they needed to, you know, call a day to this and decided to let me stop. So how many years were you doing that community service? Oh, a couple of years. Uh-huh. A couple of years. Such a beautiful story. Harrowing as well. It seemed to me that being a lesbian just gave you an unlikely advantage on this journey. Well, it's not an easy lifestyle, my guy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, geez, you know... Maybe it's easier today, but you can't be a wimp, man. You know, I mean, it's a difficult lifestyle. It's more than a lifestyle. It's a difficult way of living. Yes. You know, your family might hate you. Some man isn't going to support you. Yeah. Uh, I don't want to denigrate, you know, straight marriage or anything here. But anyway, <laughs> you know, you've got to be on your two feet, you know, if you want to have this life out of this way of being. It's yourself. It's who you are. It's your truth, your sexual, psychological truth. But it's a difficult road. And I don't think even where we are today, it's still a difficult road. It requires some chutzpah, some courage to be who you are. Yes. 
especially back in those days. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of places in this world, in the United States, where it's still tough to be who you are. Mm -hmm. I don't think we're, quote-unquote, past all this. No. That's why I said in the beginning, same shit, different day. Yep. We're not past this. We're not past senseless wars, racial injustice, homophobia. We're not past any of this. Sorry, I got on my high horse for a minute. No, I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, we're not past this. This story isn't ancient history. This is where we are. Yes. We have all these issues today in the midst of this pandemic. And it's rearing its head in a very strong and unapologetic way. Yes. I just wrote an article for Salon magazine about how war and disease were similar in some ways, you know? How it manifests itself with the structural racism that goes on, you know, in terms of who's dying, you know? Who gets sent to the front lines. Exactly. Yeah. I'm so grateful for getting to talk with you. I'm so grateful for your time and so grateful for this wonderful book. Well, thank you. I uh, enjoyed speaking with you. You asked me great questions. Very much so. Be well and you um, enjoy your life. Enjoy uh, the freedom <laughs> to be who you are. <laughs> I will. Get up each day with gratitude, man. Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah, me too. Thank you again and be well. All right. Bye-bye. And that was Emily L. Quint Freeman. She graduated from UC Berkeley in 1967 with a degree in anthropology after an act of civil disobedience where she burned, she and a group of others burned about 40,000 draft files. She went on the lam for 19 years living as a fugitive. All of this is the subject of her fascinating, harrowing, and wonderful new book, Failure to Appear, Resistance, Identity, and Loss, a Memoir. Gracias a la vida, me ha dado tanto, me dio dos luceros, que cuando los abro, perfecto distingo, lo negro del blanco. Y en el alto cielo su fondo estrellado y en las multitudes el hombre que yo amo gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto me ha dado el sonido y el abecedario con las palabras que pienso y declaro madre, amigo, hermano y luz alumbrando la ruta del alma del que estoy amando gracias a la vida 
que me ha dado tanto me ha dado la marcha de mis pies cansados con ellos anduve ciudades y charcos playas y desiertos montañas y llanos y la casa tuya Calle y tu patio Gracias a la vida Que me ha dado tanto Me dio el corazón que agita su marco cuando miro el fruto del cerebro humano cuando miro el bueno tan lejos del malo cuando miro el fondo de tus ojos Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto, me ha dado la risa y me ha dado el llanto, así yo distingo, picha de quebranto, los dos materiales que forman mi canto. Y el canto de ustedes que es el mismo canto el canto de todos que es mi propio canto gracias a la vida gracias a la that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other.